Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. When we were planning this project, our podcast agency made a recommendation that because the Junto Institute has many layers and some complexity to it, that we wait to publish episodes where I interview guests. Instead, someone should interview me in order to provide some background on the Junto Institute, our team, and our community. I couldn't think of anyone else but my friend, Jeff Leitner, to fill that role. He is not only one of the smartest people I know, but also the person who had the greatest influence on Junto in our early years without even being involved. So in this episode, the first of a two-part series, Jeff gets me to share why this podcast got started, who it's for, and the guests we're going to feature. He also has me discuss Junto, why it exists, the connection we have with Ben Franklin and Leather Aprons, and what we're accomplishing, as well as details on our vibrant community that we call the tribe. Hey there, Raman. Why are we here? Well, Jeff, um, we're here because I decided a few months ago that I wanted to uh, bring Junto to the world and recognize that doing a podcast was one of the ways by which that could happen. Fortunately, um, I knew someone who is a partner in a uh, podcast production company. I ended up retaining them to help me out with uh, this podcast. He happens to know the Junto Institute really well and knows me a little bit. And it was his recommendation from a strategic standpoint. We set this up so that people could get a better understanding of what Junto is all about. I've always recognized that it's something that's a little bit complex, perhaps more complex than it needs to be. Um, but it is what it is. And I decided to open things up by having you be here with me because of our history together, which I know we'll get into as someone who was there from the very beginning. So how do you feel about starting this enterprise? It's funny that you asked that question because that's a question I'm going to be asking every single guest that we have on this show. We use something called the emotion wheel in Junto, and it is a graphic wheel that has dozens of words on it that depict actual human emotions to enable people to identify close to precisely how they're feeling at any given moment. So at this moment right now, I'm feeling very stimulated, pretty content, but I also am feeling a little anxious and nervous because I've never done this type of thing before. And so I don't know uh, what to expect. Tell me a little bit more about the anxiety. What is it specifically you're anxious about? I have never been comfortable being in the spotlight. I have had many offers to do things at a much larger scale than we've done in the past or that I've done in the past. And you've been in some of those conversations. I have come to the conclusion that with what we have been able to accomplish even thus far and what I've observed and experienced thus far is something that I really want to bring to a larger audience. And over the last few years, as podcasting has taken off, there have been a number of people who have recommended that I do this. And they're people who I love, they, I trust, um, I respect, and I admire. And so that's why I'm feeling the anxiety is I'm in a very uncomfortable zone right now. Tell me a little bit about the uh, being stimulated. What about this enterprise stimulates you? It's the conversations that we're going to be having. 
also because you're here. You tend to bring out the best in me, if not to the better in me. And so I'm just really excited about that. I'm always pretty stimulated when I have the ability to be in, in your company. So before we go any further, I'm actually going to pass the wheel to you and uh, ask you to also share how you're feeling right now. I don't know it as well as you do, so you have to give me a second. Let me rephrase that. I don't know this at all, so let me give you <laughs> give myself a, a minute. Judging by this wheel, I seem to be about three things at once. Uh, one of them is sort of astonished to be invited to play this role. I know this is important to you, and I'm honored to be playing it, and I'm always surprised when you say that I pull out the best in you. I am looking forward to getting into this a little bit so I can be playful. That's going to make the best conversation for other people. And I'm a little concerned about being inadequate in this task because ultimately a lot is riding on this for an institution that I care about, and I want to make sure I'm up to the task. So you uh, also said that you were feeling content. What about this new experience? Isn't that unusual to feel contented going into a brand new experience? You don't know how it's going to go contentedness is more in general. It's less about how I am like in this moment, uh, although I am still very content in this moment. I'm just at a very content place in my life and all that I have to look forward to. Um, as I've been saying lately to a handful of people, borrowing a phrase from a poet and an author I admire, I'm on the brink of everything. And uh, that's what's driving this contentment. Let's talk about uh, a bit about this podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you hoping to accomplish with this? What I'm hoping to do is to have these types of conversations, but in a different way. Obviously, where I'm doing less of the talking, and uh, instead we have our guests doing more of the talking so that people hear about these experiences that they are having with this. I have the just this unbelievably great job, if you will, if you want to call it that. Um, but I get to live this life where I'm, a, I'm around people every day, day in and day out, mentors, alumni, program partners with whom we're having these conversations. And people are continually finding a way to integrate their business with their self. People who demonstrate that not only do they have a bright mind, but they've got a brighter heart and a brighter soul. And so I want to be able to bring some of those conversations that I have the good fortune of having day in and day out to the world. Uh, because I've just seen people's reactions when they get to be a part of it. They feel refreshed. They feel invigorated. And so our ability to be able to share that is really what gets me going here. Uh, so we're going to explore topics that, like I said, integrate business with the self, uh, whether it's humanity, our well-being, um, and that's mental, physical, spiritual, economic, uh, emotional. We're going to talk about emotional intelligence. We're going to talk about mindfulness, personal growth, uh, and leadership. When you imagine, uh, we're sitting here inside of a studio, and you imagine somebody in his or her car, in his or her office, uh, listening to this, who do you imagine this is for? I imagine that this is for people who have been thinking these things and haven't had outlets to talk about them. And while we're not giving them an outlet where they can have a conversation to be able to listen in on those conversations... We are not alone. You are not alone. In anything that we think about where we're alone, we're not. The problem is, is that we don't always know where to go to find the opposite of that, which is the togetherness. And that's what I hope to bring. And so I have realized, I've, I mean, I've not just realized, I've concluded because I've experienced it, that a lot of people have these thoughts and have wished that they had these outlets. And so I hope to be able to, to reach some of those folks. Do you imagine that the people listening are people that are contemplating entrepreneurship 
are participating in entrepreneurship now? I believe it'll be a little bit of both, but I don't know which direction it'll go. I imagine that much of what we're going to be addressing is going to be focused on things that are more relevant to people practicing entrepreneurship. And I might need, you know, I'd like to kind of pivot there a little bit. It's less about entrepreneurship. It's more about bringing ourselves to what we do. And so in that regard, it doesn't even have to stay constrained to entrepreneurship or people who are creating their own ventures. I have another question. You have told me that this podcast is called Flourishing Together. Why don't you tell me what that means to you and why you like the title so much? It's called Flourishing Together because that's what we do in Junto. Uh, So our vision uh, involves growth. Our mission involves growth and getting better. And last year, I realized that not only were we doing the best that we could at Junto to that end, but that everyone was. Everyone involved in this thing was helping along the way, the mentors, the alumni, even those going through the program who we call apprentices, everyone was helping each other grow. It was this this web-like effect. And so it was less about us being a service provider to these people and more about everyone helping each other, even to some degree them helping me become better. And, And the word grow, to me, no longer does it justice. It's a little overused, it's a little ubiquitous. And a couple of years ago, I came across this really incredible word called eudaimonia. And it's a Greek word from way back in the times of of Socrates and Plato. And the best translation of it uh, to English is the pursuit of meaning or the good life or flourishing. Uh, It's contrasted with the word hedonia, which we're much more familiar with. And we use hedonia in the context of hedonism or hedonists. Pursuit of pleasure. Pursuit of pleasure or avoidance of pain. So the Greeks contended that there's a spectrum, that some of us live more on the hedonia side, um, and then others live more on the eudaimonia side. No one is exclusively one or the other, so we, we, we have the ability to go across the spectrum. So that word just stuck with me, and I love this concept of eudaimonia, knowing that um, one of the translations to English is flourishing, I said, that's the word that it really gets to. Because I imagine this flower, this plant that not only grows, but becomes brighter and bigger and continues to feed the environment around it. Why don't you tell us all about what you imagine for this podcast, uh, what kind of guests you want to have on, what kind of topics you want to cover? So we're going to uh, cover a lot of the topics that we cover at the Junto Institute in the form of our sessions, as we call them, in our conversations on a day-to-day basis. We're going to feature a variety of our alumni, people who've been through our program, and a variety of our mentors. In fact, each of our episodes, in all likelihood, is going to have one uh, person from each of those two categories. So we'll cover a specific theme. I will interview uh, one of our alumni on that theme. I'll interview one of our mentors on that theme, and I'll share my thoughts on that theme. And so hopefully there'll be a little bit of a mixed bag in every single episode. The whole idea is to just get people to think, get people to be inspired, get people to look at themselves in a different light. You know, the the greatest feeling in the world that I get every single day is uh, watching people grow and learn. That's what I'm here on earth for. My, my life purpose, my mission is to help people flourish, is to help people grow. And so if we touch one person in all this time, that's going to make it worth the while. So let's dig into uh, Junto itself. What is it? (laughs) Wow, you really set that up well. Well, first of all, let me respond directly in saying we don't know yet. Um, We're still figuring all of that out. Great. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) 
um, I'll give the logical response first or the rational response that uh, most people want to hear. And then I'll probably dovetail back into some stuff that's probably more emotional and on more on the spiritual side. What Junto is, is effectively a leadership institute. It's a place where the founders and leaders of growth stage companies come to develop their uh, leadership abilities, their decision-making skills, and the alignment of their team. They get all of that through a program we've designed that has deep mentorship and very practical learning through the people who have been there and done that. Um, they are our mentors. It started out as that effectively being our, our product, and it has evolved into this place where uh, people are indeed flourishing together. They're growing together, not necessarily doing business together, um, but rather learning with one another and because of one another. It is a place where from the very beginning we have been hearing, and when I say very beginning, I mean three months into our first nine-month program, we were hearing things that I never imagined we would hear. And it threw my co-founder, Catherine, and me for a loop. We didn't know what to do with it. And like what? I remember that um, one of the founders that we had back then said, I'd do next to anything to attend every session. Uh, another one said, one of the main things that I've learned is to have confidence. This is three months into it. And not just how to have confidence, but how to become more confident. So from the beginning, you decided that what the world needed was a place for this to happen. <laughs> but you're doing it in an environment where there is no shortage of products for company founders and executives, right? Yes and yes and no. Talk about that. So back then, no, it, I this is not what I had envisioned happening so quickly. What I saw at the very beginning was a need for the founders and leaders of growth stage companies to become better at leadership. I saw that, and, and I can go back to kind of what led to that, but that's what I saw. I had no idea that, like I said, three months into our, into our launch, people would be saying those things, that they were already seeing so much improvement from a human standpoint that could transfer to the business. And that was when we realized, my gosh, if this is happening at three months, what's going to happen at nine months? What's going to happen when two years after they graduate? And so that just created this freedom to go a little bit further. Also recognizing, by, by the way, that I didn't know whether this was something that we got lucky with or that we could actually replicate. So it was all very new. So what was the original intent if this is what surprised you? Um, we talked a little bit about my background as an educator, and one of the great things about being at a university like DePaul, which uh, happens to be you know right in downtown Chicago, it's an urban uh, and commuter campus, so there's a lot of um, adult learners, as they call them, a lot of non-conventional college students. I often say this when people ask me, what did you learn from being an educator? I learned how adults learn. That's really what I, what I learned. And I not only learned how adults learn, but I also learned how entrepreneurs learned because we did so much work with them. Along the way, I began uh, studying leadership. In fact, there's you know funny story about that because I had uh, wanted to learn about leadership on my own and figured that it could benefit my role at the time in running the entrepreneurship center. So I sent an email to the to the dean of the business school and said, "Can you send me through whatever training um, you put all of the department heads through?" Uh, I didn't get a response at first. I followed up, and the response was, "We don't send them to any leadership training." And I found that kind of funny and ironic, given that we were a business school, an accredited business school in a large city, and that the heads of the management department, finance department, and so on didn't go to leadership training. 
So then I sent an email to the head of training and development at the university. Got a response 24 hours later that said, uh, thanks for your question, Raman. I did a search and here are some leadership seminars I found. And I responded with, well, what do department heads across the university or chairs or deans go through? And there wasn't one consistent one for, for the school. So like most people, I just started Googling myself. Kept coming across this phrase, emotional intelligence. And mind you, this is about 10 or 12 years ago now. And so the more I dug into that, the more I started to become really fascinated with emotional intelligence. And the reason was, was because it was rooted in science, whereas leadership is not. It's one of the reasons why many people debate whether leadership can be learned or even taught. But emotional intelligence is rooted in science, and therefore one can argue that it is easier to teach or easier to learn. And that was when I realized, like, wait a minute, no one is talking about leadership much less emotional intelligence, in the context of startups and entrepreneurship, in the context of the people that are starting these companies. And so that's what led to kind of the, the stimulation of an idea whereby I thought there could be an opportunity here to bring something to the world. So this idea of emotional intelligence has been with you from the get-go with Junta. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. When I realized that I wanted to do something in this area, this was around 2010-11 where the whole lean startup movement began in the world of entrepreneurship and business. And one of the core elements of that is to talk to your customers to find out what pain points they have. So I went out and I actually interviewed uh, a few dozen startups in Chicago, and, and na namely the founders. And we just asked them questions like, what do you wish you would have learned up to this point? What do you want to learn going forward? Who do you wish you had in your network? Who do you want in your network? What do you wish you had in your toolbox back then? What do you want in your toolbox now? Uncovered all this incredible information, whiteboarded it all with a couple of friends of mine, looked for patterns, and I'll never forget the day when I said, there it is. If we can figure out how to provide all of this that's on this whiteboard to a company and its founders, we've got something. And they said, well, how are you going to do that? And I said, that's what I've got to figure out. But if we can come up with a solution, there might be something there. Very few people said, I want to become a better leader or I need more leadership training. But so much of what they shared was an outcome of that. And nobody said, I wish I had higher emotional intelligence. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, and mind you, this is, you know, emotional intelligence as a phrase became popular about 20, 22 years ago uh, by Daniel Goleman's books. But even 10 years ago, wasn't in the daily parlance of most people. You know, today it is. It's different. Back then, it was more about, you know, I need to learn how to motivate my people. I need to learn how to sell more effectively. I need to learn how to solve problems better with my team. So they're talking about all this stuff. And then as I'm studying emotional intelligence alongside of this, I'm sitting there going, dude, I got something that can help you with that. I got something that can help you with that. And then it was a matter of weaving all of this together. So emotional intelligence was sort of a half step away from everything that they were asking for. More than a half step, I would say, yeah. But it was, at least to your mind, the sort of silver bullet that if you could transmit this idea how to become more proficient at emotional intelligence, how to grow, then it would achieve all the ends that were on your whiteboard. Is that right? Not necessarily that it would, but it could. Right? If people actually made that effort, that it could. Little did I know that that's exactly what was happening, but I couldn't see it because I'd never seen it before. So... You are actually developing emotional intelligence in the first companies that went through, but they didn't know to call it that, and you didn't know to call it that because it had not occurred to you that that would be the outcome. We knew what to call it. We were, we were using the phrase. We just didn't know that it could happen so quickly just because people were actually not only studying it, this is the important part, they were actually applying it because that's what we've been all about. 
right? It's not just about studying emotional intelligence. It's one thing to know it. The definition we use of emotional intelligence refers to the ability and the need to use the information. So it's one thing to be emotionally intelligent from an awareness and understanding standpoint. It's totally a different thing to actually put it to use day in and day out in our, not just our interactions with other people, but even in, in our day-to-day living ourselves and our interactions with ourselves. I'm struck by how funny it is that because it had never been applied in a business context, because it had never been applied in a leadership context, because it hadn't been applied in an entrepreneurship context, when it was happening, you didn't even know what to look for because there was no track to follow. I mean, you might have gotten this right for years and had no idea you were getting it right. So I guess good on you for figuring it out early on. So I know another thing about Junto is that it is not strictly peer-to-peer, that a lot of the offerings in the marketplace for founders and leaders has to do with them being in groups learning from each other primarily or exclusively. In your program, you have built in from the beginning this idea of mentors. So what's that about and how does that work for you? Yeah, so once I had believed I was validating that this solution could address the problem, then it was a matter of, okay, how do I turn this into a into a business? How can I make this work economically? And I couldn't figure out how to do that um, in a way that made sense for both the market and for us as the business, uh, unless we had the ability to have people who were involved who effectively provided their time. And we were asking them for very little of that, of that time. And so we realized that mentorship was a key to this. I've always been very careful with um, how I look at mentorship and what I consider to be mentorship. Um, And that's all from my experience being a mentor and being mentored. And so I was pretty selective with who I approached at the beginning. And it was people who very simply had been there and done that. People who could relate to these founders that we were hoping to attract into our program Uh, People who had experience building companies, failing uh, with some of them, succeeding in many of them, growing them, and be able to not only understand the questions and challenges that the founders would have, but more importantly, be able to relate to them emotionally. So the mentors have become a real critical piece to Junto. They are effectively today a part of our team. I don't run a small business. I run a growing community. These people, they, they don't just donate their time. They donate their heart and soul. They've told us that they are a part of our team. They've asked me if they can give more of their time. They've asked me how they can get more out of Junto. They see this as a place where they can also grow and flourish with everyone that they're helping. And now they're starting to help each other out. We've had mentors do business with one another. We've had mentors uh, fund each other, invest in each other. So it's really just incredibly gratifying and, and fulfilling to see that community flourishing alongside, you know, our overall community. So the mentors are true believers in what you're trying to do, yes? I'd say that they become true believers after a certain point in time, yeah, after some experience with it. So they begin a little wary? No, they don't begin wary. You know, they kind of view it as, okay, I'm going to go mentor. It's like most people who go through Junto, even even our customers, even the companies, we call it the surprise effect, that at some point, for the, for the companies, it usually happens about six months into the program. They have this surprise effect whereby they're, they realize they're getting so much more out of this than they ever imagined. And we now know it happens. The mentors also get there a little bit later because they have less interaction with with the overall program. But certainly after their first year, most of them say, this was an enjoyable experience and I want to do more of it. We've had over 150 mentors so far, six years. I'm going to guess that maybe two, I'll double that, 
to be safe for didn't have that experience. That's been pretty cool. What role do mentors play practically in all this? Uh, practically speaking, they uh, they are involved in the program itself. So there's several different forms that they play. Those who teach our classes, we call them mentors. They're class mentors because what they're doing is they're not delivering content. They're sharing experiences and they're asking questions. Those are two fundamental elements of our approach to learning is to use questions and shared experiences. Uh, so some of our mentors effectively teach classes. Some of our mentors serve on what we call mentor teams that are like advisory boards. They meet once a month with each company as a group to help that company address the challenges that they're facing. A third group of mentors are what we call one-to-one -one mentors, kind of conventional mentoring relationships. But again, we ask them to follow this principle of sharing experiences and asking questions because we believe that those are the critical pieces of what mentorship is really about. And so underlying all of that, whether they're in a classroom setting, a mentor team setting, or a one-to-one -one mentor setting, um, we ask them to not give any advice because that's not mentorship. Little Socratic. Yes. So the, the people who, the companies, the leaders who join your program, you're trying to get them to both grow in emotional intelligence with its uh, tenuate effects, and you're tr presumably trying to grow their businesses. I mean, this is why they've made this investment, or at least why they believe they've made the investment. How do you measure success of a participant? Believe it or not, we now measure success based on what they tell us about their own experience and their growth. That matters more than the byproducts that are more measurable with respect to their business. But truth be told, uh, the last survey that we did of all of our companies was an annualized growth rate of 70% per year uh, since the time they graduated from the program from a top-line standpoint, from a revenue standpoint. Uh, we've had 31 companies finish the program. Only one of those companies has failed. The other 30 remained in operation. Since that time, a couple of them have been acquired. One of them voluntarily wound themselves down. It wasn't a failure. So we've had some really great outcomes. And as a business, what we also care about is that they continue to do business with us. And so that's a, a big indicator for how we measure successes. Will they come back to us for additional uh, programs and services? So uh, we've talked about uh, the beginnings of uh, Junto. Uh, what else do you want to tell me about the origin? Once I realized that there was something there as far as an opportunity, I wanted to bring this to life. And uh, I am like many entrepreneurs. I'm a visionary. I'm a strategist. I'm a big picture guy. And I was real fortunate to have then met my uh, co-founder, uh, Catherine Jelinek, who was the perfect yin to my yang, uh, because she was all about execution, bringing things to life. She uh, had recently relocated to Chicago, was a couple of years out of college, and had all this energy uh, to be able to do something meaningful. But then she also just fit from a spirit standpoint as well. She appreciated what we were doing. Uh, she also had an appreciation for Benjamin Franklin, which we need to get to at some point, and uh, enabled this to come to life. She brought it to life and brought her own magic with that, her own sense of presence and being that complements my style and my being very effectively. Looking back, there's no way this could have happened without um, our partnership, you know, like most good partnerships. And so I'm real fortunate that I got lucky in that regard. Um, I was actively looking for a co-founder, uh, had a short list of people, and uh, she made the short list, and it just worked out um, in, in a lot of ways. And uh, it created the foundation not only for us as a team, 
But then what she also did from a very practical business standpoint was built our operation, like designed our operation, systemized things. And uh, it's now been almost two years since she left the business operationally. And what's been remarkable is all that work is now starting to pay off um, that, that she had done from an operational standpoint. And, and we're just a, a very efficient, productive business despite our small size. Uh, so it's been real powerful. She is also, I can say, having known her since this started, uh, that she is a walking, talking, breathing manifestation of emotional intelligence, which uh, you at the beginning were not. Well, I was becoming. I, I will say I was becoming. It was becoming. not as obvious to those of us. Yeah. And, no, it's, it, I appreciate you bringing that up. Catherine is one of those people I mentioned, I referred to earlier, which is she grew up in a very nurturing environment. Um, I've heard a lot from her about her household and her parents and her family. And um, she had those gifts. And she also is an old soul. These are things that she thinks has been thinking about for a long, long time, spends a lot of time discussing with people close to her. And on the other side, I wasn't born with these gifts. I didn't have great social skills. Um, I lacked an enormous amount of self-awareness growing up and well into my 20s and 30s. That plus being a part of an immigrant household got kind of, quote unquote, suckered into the trappings of Western society and never felt like I fit in because we moved also a lot when I was a child. So I had like the perfect storm of all these circumstances that didn't enable me to become as emotionally intelligent as I could. And, you know, my, my parents to this day, God bless them, they're, they're, they're alive. They, they admit that they didn't know what they were doing as parents. They, they were doing the best they could, uh, but they weren't as effective as they now looking back wish they, they were. And uh, so someone like Catherine was a perfect contrast to that. And that's why, despite our age difference and our experience difference, I learned so much from just having her by my side day in and day out in the business. It really hit home when just maybe, what, five or seven years, five or six years ago, uh, we were doing a session on empathy, uh, which is only one, one of many competencies in emotional intelligence. And, and I stress that because many people actually define emotional intelligence as empathy. They oversimplify it. But we were doing a session on empathy, and it occurred to me that for the first maybe 15 years of my marriage, um, my wife would drill that into my head. You know, I wish you had more empathy for me. I, I need you to be more empathetic. And I understood it intellectually. I never understood it emotionally. I never knew what that meant because I didn't feel empathetic because it wasn't a natural thing. I then subsequently learned that empathy has three layers to it. There's emotional empathy, which is what most people refer to, but then there's also cognitive empathy, which is that we can understand someone's perspectives or where they're coming from. And then there's compassion empathy, which is the hardest layer, which is the more, most advanced layer. But my point being that it wasn't until I actually was able to study empathy and then process it in a way that made sense to me as opposed to being told about it where it served someone else as opposed to serving me and that's when i started to see the power of it and then you know back to catherine someone who is then by my side also who is just a natural empath who reflects like talk about mirror neurons absolutely reflects in a moment exactly what another person is expressing non-verbally both positive and negative uh, as i've shared with her that alongside with this idea that my kids, you know, now that they're a little bit older, said, you know, Dad, when, when we were younger, we, we used to be afraid of you um, because I was just this stoic, stern personality. And when the kids did something that I didn't like, I would let them know. Ten years ago, I was a very different person. You know, I, I, I'm very open about this, that I've done a 180 as a human being in 10 years. And that's what gives me so much 
hope and promise for not only myself, but more importantly, all the people I'm around because, man, if I could do this starting at the age of 40, imagine, just imagine what people can do if they start at 20, 25, 30. And along the way, I've done a lot of reading, a lot of reflecting, a lot of practice, a a ton of conversations, thousands of conversations that have led to what I now call a spiritual journey. And it's never going to stop. It's just going to keep going. You said that Catherine shared uh, your affection for Ben Franklin, who seems to have a role in all this, most notably providing the name for Junto. You want to talk about that? Uh, So in 1727, uh, when we were a very, very young country, in colonial Philadelphia, population 10,000, a 21-year-old Ben Franklin assembled a group of 12 enterprising artisans and tradesmen. We might call them the entrepreneurs of that day. Uh, These 12 men would meet every Friday evening for the purpose of uh, philosophical debate and mutual improvement. And they were um, cobblers, blacksmiths, printers, lithographers. Again, these artisans and tradesmen. And over time, their debates and conversations turned into what we might now call activities. And probably the best-known activity was when they started to borrow books from one another. Um, they would bring books to, the, to their meetings, and they would read passages from them, and someone would say, Jeff, you know, I, I really enjoyed that reading you made. Can I borrow that book? And uh, you would say, sure, as long as I can borrow one of yours. Well, what happened is that turned into the first public library in the town of Philadelphia. And needless to say, we now have public libraries throughout the United States. Uh, In addition to that activity, many others uh, occurred. And uh, in addition to the public library today, our public university system, our hospital system, our volunteer firehouse system, uh, and our postal service all owe their existence to the activities that these 12 men did back in the 1700s. And he called that group the Junto. J-U-N-T-O. It's believed it was pronounced with a, like a Y, Yunto. And as a colonial American history buff, I was always inspired and fascinated by that story and said, someday if I do something that has the remotest ability to create some impact that he did, I'm going to call it that. And so that's where the name Junto comes from. And you changed the pronunciation. Yes. <laughs> and, and much of that was because um, Yunto just to me just didn't sound right. But then the other part also was, as many people probably know, um, there is a Spanish word pronounced junto, and which means together. And it was just the perfect fit for us because I saw that um, possibility down the road. And a leather apron is part of all this somehow? Yes. Um, so in our first year, uh, I'll never forget the moment when Catherine and I were saying, okay, we've got our graduation event coming up when these companies are going to be finishing the program. And I said, we do everything that's non-conventional, as you said earlier, breaking convention. I can't give them a diploma. What are we going to give them? And so we debated different ideas. And finally, I said, wait a minute, we're going to give them a leather apron. And she said, why are we going to do that? Uh, And I said, check out leather aprons online. We found a guy doing it. And then, you know, I had to tell the story. And that is that uh, the reason we decided to give a leather apron is because, back to Ben Franklin, his Yunto, those 12 guys, were lithographers, blacksmiths, cobblers men who wore leather aprons. The alternate name that he had for the for his junto was the Leather Apron Club. And so we then decided to call our alumni organization the Leather Apron Club. And the only people who ever get leather aprons are companies that graduate. And so to this day, each company, when they finish the program, gets a leather apron emblazoned 
with the Junta logo and their logo. And uh, they typically put them up in their offices. And uh, it's a sign of what they accomplished and, more importantly, what they're capable of. So there you have it, some background on flourishing together, as well as the Junto Institute. But we're not done yet. In our next episode, part two of this interview, Jeff and I talk about our theory of the third wave of business. We get into one of my greatest passions, the topic of emotional intelligence, and he puts me in that uncomfortable position of talking about myself. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. This episode was produced by Dante32.